0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Trinity Church in Carreville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, please visit our website, trinity901.com. So when I was in the eighth grade, when our football season was over, we were allowed to bump up to the high school team. And we practiced with them and we stood on the sidelines on Friday nights. Now, upon reflection, when we practiced with them, we didn't do too much. The coach never let the high school players hit us. And when we stood on the sidelines on Friday nights, we never came close to getting in the game. But let me tell you, as a eighth grader in middle school whose only dream in life was to play high school football. This was glorious. I remember one day after practice, my mom arranged for me to ride home with a high school player who lived near us. And we had a senior quarterback who was the star. And he was also a star in basketball. And he was Joe Cool. You want to know how cool he was? He drove a Porsche. I don't know what business any kid in high school has driving a Porsche. Nobody else in my school even drove anything remotely close. But he did. And my ride could not take me home that day. And he looked at me and he said, Brewer, I know where you live. You want to ride home? And it was as if the heavens opened up. And in that moment, I thought I was the coolest person in my school because I was with him. And as we took off in his Porsche, it seemed like we were going. 100 miles an hour, I'm sure he was probably obeying the speed limit. He said to me, I need to run some errands. Do you mind if I go a few places before I take you home? (sighs) Yes. And I did everything I could to make sure that whoever passed us on the road saw that I was in the Porsche with him. It would only further elevate my status As an eighth grade kid, the star player in this incredible car going around town, just being with him was special. Now you you understand the humor of that illustration, but as I was looking at our passage today, the last verse made me realize that God is telling us that he is with us, that God is with his people. And that is not funny. That is not a silly illustration. It is unbelievable. It is powerful. It is incredible that verse 23 tells us that God is with us and as I thought it changed everything in that moment as an 8th grader, in reality, the truth for today and forevermore is that it changes everything that God is with us. And so there's really one thing that I want us to talk about this morning. We are coming to the end of chapter 8. Now, as I've told you previously, Chapter 7 and chapter 8 serve as like a hinge in the book of Zechariah. And we are moving, beginning in chapter 9, to the second phase of this ancient work. And so, looking at the chapter, and going back and looking at verses 1 through 13, which we've already covered that ground, I wanted to provide a summary as we move into the second part of this book. So we see in our verses today a division. I think you can divide it up, 14 through 17, 18 through 19, and 20 through 23. God is telling Israel in this chapter that he is going to bring blessing to His covenant people. I have great plans for you. I have great things in store for you. I want to do wonderful things for you because I am a loving and gracious and merciful God who keeps His promises. Promises that I made to Abraham. Promises that I made to Noah. And promises that I made to Adam. So He's encouraging His covenant people to do two things. And we've talked about this many, many times to seek revitalization, covenant renewal of their hearts, to love Him, to worship Him, and to follow after Him, and to rebuild the temple that was destroyed in Jerusalem. So verses 14 through 17, we see God saying to His people that He is going to bring good to Jerusalem. He's encouraging them to commit themselves to covenant obedience. I have great things in store for you. I have big plans for you. I am going to fulfill my promises to you, and you need to be obedient to me because of who I am, what I have done, what I am doing, and what I will do. So what does covenant obedience look like? What does revitalization of the heart and soul look like? And the Lord is saying that you will speak the truth and act justly towards one another. That my word, which is true, will infiltrate your heart and your mind and it will pour forth from you because you are in sync with me and who I am as my people. You will... You will be about what is right and good and you will act justly. Your actions will be good and right. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Be a reflection of me. It's a good reminder for us. Be a reflection of me also we see in 14 through 17 to guard your hearts and shun evil guard your hearts and shun evil again another good reminder for God's people today we live in a sinful broken fallen world I've said this many times and the world speaks to us the world pursues us The world wants to trap us. It wants to fool us. It comes to us often in intricate, well planned disguises. Our adversary wants nothing more than for this church plant and its family to fail, to fall for his ruthless schemes. We can often be too relaxed. We can often be too comfortable. The Lord is reminding us that part of spiritual renewal is understanding our proclivities to sin, the depravity of our heart, and guarding it and shunning evil, turning away from sin, seeking to obey the Word of God, being holy as Jesus is holy. These are all beautiful things that we should pursue because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So we see this mentioned to Israel in 14 through 17. In 18 and 19, God talks about a new day and its arrival. A new day is coming. When this promise is fulfilled, The feast that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. These feasts that originated as a result of the destruction of the temple. And the Lord, the men who came and asked if the feast should be over since the temple is being rebuilt, the Lord told those men, that committee, those representatives, that these feast were unnecessary, and that they were carrying them out in the wrong spirit. That their hearts were not right. That you were feasting to earn favor with me. You were not, excuse me, you were fasting to earn favor with me. You were not fasting to get your heart right, to get your heart straight, to submit to me. And so the Lord is saying in 18 through 19, a new day is coming. These feasts will be over. Commit yourselves to spiritual revitalization. It is going to happen and it is going to be glorious. You are to be a people committed to truth and peace. And then verses 20 through 23, the coming of the kingdom of God of God. What does the Lord of Heaven's armies say? In those 10 days, 10 men, and excuse me, in those days, 10 men from different nations and languages of the world will clutch at the sleeve of one Jew and they will say, "Let us walk with you for we have heard that God is with you." They will cling to him, drag us to Jerusalem. Because we've heard how great Yahweh is. And so we see a glimpse of the coming of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It is when the reign and rule of God is experienced by everyone, everywhere. Remember, according to the word according to the words of the Old Testament, Israel was to be a priest to the nations. Israel, in their covenant obedience, in their covenant faithfulness, was, their actions would make Jerusalem so great that the surrounding nations who worshipped false gods would say, we want this. We want to be a part of this. that that they would flock to Jerusalem, that they would descend the holy hill, and that they would repent, and that they would turn, and that they would worship the God of Israel. That is what the Old Testament pictured for Israel. And we know the story. We've talked about it thus far in Zechariah that They did not do this. They continually sinned against God. They continually rebelled against God. They did what, excuse me, they did not do what he said they should do as a nation, as his people. In fact, instead of the nations coming to Israel, they capitulated to the nations, They wanted what the other nations had. They wanted to worship and serve the gods of those surrounding nations. They returned from exile. The temple is in ruins. The city is in ruins. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. But their loving and gracious and merciful and promise-keeping God speaks up in verses 20-23. through And He says to them, don't lose hope a day is coming despite everything that you've done where the nations of the world will run to you because they want me because they want me to be their god their savior their ruler their king and you can't help but not see it in this passage When you read about holding on, clutching to the sleeve of one Jew, what do you think? Jesus. He's jumping off the page here because he's the one true Israelite. He's the only one who obeyed God perfectly, he's the only one who did not rebel. He's the only one who listened to His Father. And Jesus and His ministry brings hope and healing and salvation. And if you'll remember from our journey through the Gospel of Mark, not only to the Jewish people, but who else? To Gentiles. And so in Jesus, the nations of the world cling to His robe and He brings them into the heavenly Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. And so that brings chapter 8 to completion. And we now turn the corner and we move on to the second half of this book, the second half of this Minor prophet speaking words of prophecy. And so in summary, as I look back over chapter 8, and even into chapter 7, I see one main thing. Yes, it talks over and over again about spiritual renewal and rebuilding the temple. But I see one thing. And it's this. Have no fear no peace have no fear and know truly in the depths of your heart and your soul real lasting peace verses 1 through 13 of chapter 8 God is promising Israel that a day is coming when they will ultimately and finally experience peace A new day will come and it will be perfect. It will be shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. But their word is better than our word. Because when we say peace and we think of the current events of Ukraine and Israel, we say, Lord, bring peace. And we mean a cease to military and terroristic hosta, host, hostilities. In Hebrew, the word shalom, the word peace, is far greater. It is holistic, it means perfection, it means the ceasing of violent hostilities the end of war, the end of hunger, the end of disease, the end of poverty, the uprooting of all things that are terrible and problematic and evil, the restoration of everything in the name of God for His glory. Wholeness, holistic, lasting, ultimate, peace. And so God is telling Israel in these first 13 verses that day is coming, I promise you. verse 15. So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, the coming of the kingdom of God, shalom. And then he says, fear not. Again, the summary of chapter 8 no fear, no peace. N O, fear, K N O W, peace. So that brings us to today. God is telling Israel that they should have peace, that they should be at peace. That they should be peaceful with one another because a new day is coming. Shalom will arrive when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. That promise is for them. That promise is for us because we are one in Christ, the true Israelite. You have fears. I know you do. You are human just like me. I know mine. I don't know yours, but I know they're there. You have problems, you have worries, you have issues, you have anxieties, you have concerns. It may be with your children, it may be parenting, it may be with your parents, it may be with your job. It may be your finances. It may be with other people. I don't know. But I know they're there, and I know that they are real, and I know that they are troublesome, and I know that they often bring heartache. The Word of God is telling us this morning that that fear should not overwhelm us why and there it is in verse 23 it's because we are clutching as believers to the robe of that Jew we're holding on to that robe but in reality he's holding us So we should not be fearful. We should not let our fears drown us. There's four theological propositions in Jesus that tell us that the people of God, His covenant children, like Israel so long ago, should not be fearful. Because the one that we hold on to The one that holds us more tightly and perfectly loves us greatly. Just briefly and quickly think about the incarnation, a theological word. That Jesus pursued you. He knew your fears. He knew your troubles. He knew your sin. He knew your rebellion. And despite all of that, He came in the flesh and He pursued you in love to make you His own. The atonement, another theological word. That Jesus loved you so much that He gave His life for you. So that you no longer have to fret, so you no longer have to worry, so you no longer have to fear. He has redeemed you, He has saved you, whatever the world may bring. He has made you right in the sight of your Father God. The resurrection, a term we're all familiar with. How much did Jesus love us? He delivered us from sin and from death and from misery. Resurrection means that shalom that I talked about earlier belongs to us. Now in part and then ultimately. And then one more. The ascension. We should not have any fear because Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus gave His life for us. Jesus was raised from the dead. And finally, He is ascended into heaven. Something that we often don't think about. We perhaps dwell more on the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection. Christmas, Easter. But Jesus loves us so much that he now rules from heaven as our high king from the throne of grace over us actively. I remember thinking about this as a child and it was as if I was taught he was raised from the dead and he left and he's gone and maybe he will come again one day. But that's not the theology of the ascension. The theology of the ascension is that He rules and power with authority and He sends His Spirit to minister to the greatest fears of our heart. He is there. And He is not only watching over you at every moment, whatever may come your way, He is praying for you all the time. He is acting. Acting at this very moment, despite your sin, as your perpetual sacrifice in the presence of God the Father. This is a real and active and powerful ministry. And when you think about the atonement and the resurrection and the incarnation and the ascension, when you package it all together... your heart should feel light and your soul should feel free. Because you have a God that loves you mightily, He has made great promises to you, and He has done wonderful things for you. No fear, no peace. Colossians 3.15 says, and Trinity let this be the word that you take with you this morning into the world, into a week that will be filled with challenges and guess what? Fears. Let this be the word that guides you as we go our separate ways. First Corinthians, excuse me, Colossians 3:15. The apostle Paul says, Let the peace of Christ. Rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ, His incarnation, His atonement, His resurrection, His ascension, bring peace to your hearts. Our Lord, our God, our King, our Redeemer, thank you for giving us peace. Thank you for the promise of the coming of the kingdom in all its fullness. Lord, help us to not fall prey to the traps and the disguises of our adversary, but to look to the cross, to look to your word, Lord God, thank you for the atonement, the incarnation, the resurrection, and the ascension. Bless us in the name of your Son. Amen.